Thanks, guys. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, as Spencer said earlier, um, the other pastor here, my name's uh, Chris, I'm the other pastor here as well as Spence, but um, as Spence said, we're really glad you guys are with us, and um, thanks for squishing these past couple of Sundays. It's been really tight for a couple of, couple of weeks, and uh, we're going to be going back to services on September 11th, which will space things out a little bit more, but thanks for uh, just getting a little cozy here for, uh, for the past two, three weeks, and um, I think, I think uh, it'll lighten up a little bit before, uh, before Labor Day weekend, or sorry, September 11th, but we'll, we'll just have to see. Uh, but glad you're here. If you're here for the baptisms, great. Uh, glad you're visiting today. If it's just your first time here, just regardless, we're, we're grateful that you're joining us. Uh, as Peter said, we are in Genesis right now, preaching-wise as a church. So uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you have one, or right in front of you, the few Bibles, or it's easy to find the book if you're not very familiar with the Bible yet. It's the first book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis means beginnings, theological and historical and otherwise, and so it's why uh, it's, named, uh, it's named that. Or if you have a device too, just go ahead and flip there. But as uh, Peter was summarizing this story, I was just kind of freshly struck with just how weird it is. <laughs> just weird, you know? Just odd in so many levels. And it's not the first or last of those in the Bible, but um, yeah, I think it's, it helps us to kind of get to the gospel in and of itself, and that the cross is strange. Uh, the way God works through death, uh, the way he works through suffering, the way he kind of paradoxically brings such good through such evil is strange and doesn't always kind of fit logically, but it is truth nonetheless. And um, so we'll talk about some of these connections here in just a little bit. I did want to mention, though, a couple of recap things that if you are new to the book or brand new to the Bible or wherever you are with that, just so you know where we're at, um, Peter mentioned Abraham and the song did. So that's, that's one of the main characters of the book. Uh, Abraham, just understand that he's a central figure. We'll uh, actually start talking about some of his kids here a little bit. Isaac is in, in the story today, and some of his kids, Jacob and Joseph, come a little bit later. We're kind of almost done with Abraham. He's going to die pretty soon. Sarah, his wife, actually dies next week, so we're kind of at the end of this generation here um, uh, soon. Uh, but Abraham, uh, Abraham's story is uh, beautiful. It's very complicated. It's full of sin. It's full of redemption. And as we said, I, I think we've been saying almost every week, but especially last week, I remember saying, uh, Abraham's story is emblematic of ours uh, in the sense that he's a sinner. Uh, he's he's a, just a guy that God, for God only knows why reason, identifies uh, and loves and calls him away from his homeland to a new land where he is, where God is. So it's emblematic of what happens. All of you Christians in the room or Christians to be, it's emblematic of your story. Uh, we're, not, we're not looking for God. God just, uh, as, as we're exiled from him, we're far off from him in our sin, but he comes to rescue us and call us and show us grace and call us to the place where he is. And, and so there's a lot of ways to describe sin biblically, but that's pretty much the first thing you see in the Bible is understanding sin as exile. Exile from God, being cast away from his presence because we went our own way. We rebelled. We self-deified. We thought we were great when we weren't. We, we listened to the lie of the devil, which was, you can do it. God's okay, he's over there, but he's, he's not right when he says he's everything. He's not right when he says that he, he should be your all in all. You have enough good in you that you can climb that mountain, you can cross that sea, you can do enough good. That's the lie of the devil that we've all listened to in some fashion, and, and whether we realize that or not, kind of passively or actively, we've all bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And so it's in that state God comes to our rescue because it's not as though we're looking for God. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 3, no one looks for God. No one searches for God from a pure heart. There might be some that are looking for him but from wrong motives and from a long kind of, wrong kind of religious perspective. But the Bible says no one's really looking from a pure heart. No one's actually searching for him. And so he has to do the searching. That's the gospel. 
is if you're, in, if, if you're in the room and you're a Christian, or again, if you're a Christian to be, this is going to be your story. Uh, you are like, you and I are like Abraham. We, we, we're in a far off land and God has come to, to save us. And so we've been saying that his, his story is emblematic of ours. We'll see some of that today. We've also been saying his story is emblematic of Christ's. As an ancestor of Jesus Christ, he resembles Jesus beforehand. Or to use Paul the Apostle's language in Galatians 3, Genesis is the gospel beforehand. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and resurrection, all of that beforehand, prophetically, and in an anticipating manner, is in Genesis. And so as we've been seeing then, Abraham's kind of this two-sided thing. In one sense, he's a sinner like us. He's a called-by-grace sinner. And he's one who has faith in God as a sinner, in that sense, emblematic of us, and he resembles us. But in another sense, he is emblematic of Christ. He's, he's typifying Christ in his gospel and other New Testament realities beforehand. And, and so we're going to see that today play out in, in this story again. Uh, sometimes, it, it, it's, you might not be aware of this yet, but the Bible does this all over the place. And sometimes it's very explicit, like today's passage. It's kind of easy to see. In other passages, like last week's, it's very implicit. It's really hard to see. We were here last week with the, the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech and trees and wells and seven female sheep and handshakes and oaths and strangeness. Christ is in there as well in this covenantal idea, this binding of relationships. And so uh, we, we talked about that. In fact, a little a funny aside here. Um, last week, if you were here, I mentioned how uh, hardly any commentary, uh, ancient or contemporary, I've read uh, commented on that passage. You guys are here for that? Maybe you started off that way anyway, but uh, it was true at the end of Genesis 21. The funny thing is the sermon didn't get recorded last week, and so what, what that means is on our website, it's going to appear like we skipped it. <laughs> you know, so I, I was saying the whole time I was saying, but we're going to do this. You know, we're going to preach this passage, and, but now people go on our website and say, dude, sellouts. You know, they just skipped it, but <laughs> go figure. God, that's one of those God is a sense of humor things, I guess. But if you do want to talk to us about it and you weren't here and you read it and you thought, what in the world does that mean? We would love to talk to you more about it. I'm not going to preach it in empty sanctuary. I've done that before. It's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So um, look at have Paul do it. Intern job. It would be a good intern job. We should do that. So, But anyway. All right. Let's, um, let's read Genesis 22, uh, 1 to 19 today. It's a small section at the end that I'll maybe summarize next week. It's not as important, uh, so I'm going to skip a few verses there. But the, the gist of this is in the first 19 verses. I'll read this in its entirety to begin. Verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his hand, uh, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. All right, so here's where we're going to go with this today. We're going to look at this from two perspectives. If you've been around for a while, you've seen me do this before. Um, I think it's a helpful way to approach Old Testament narrative, especially although New Testament, I think, could be applied this way as well. But we're going to look at this uh, in the way that a lot of the early uh, church fathers did, and, and that is from a human perspective and a divine perspective. Kind of in the spirit of how Jesus is both human and divine, he is the ultimate word. This is the written word. Uh, there are sometimes in the scripture is kind of an obvious human perspective, and, and that is to say, how is Abraham a picture of us? Where is the example of faith here? And the divine side is to ask the question, how is Abraham uh, or Isaac, or in this case the ram as well, how typical of Jesus Christ? How is there more of that direct kind of prophetic symbolic line uh, to, to Jesus? And um, as some would say, I'm just going to quote here in a second, Zwingli from the 16th century would say, that's actually the true meaning of the passage is uh, to see Jesus in this on, on that level. We'll, we'll come to that. That's the second thing. So let's start with the human side, uh, Abraham as a, a picture of us or Maybe better said, an example of an example of faith. A little uh, context here: uh, Genesis twenty-two, uh, one to two, and I'll just actually read that first line. But it starts by saying, "After these things." And so, if you haven't been here, we'll kind of summarize this. Peter actually did a good job at that before the song. But after these things includes uh, God providing Abraham uh, prom sorry, promising to provide Abraham a son. Miraculously doing that, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now even though he and his wife are around 100 years old. And God said, basically, through your offspring, through your son Isaac, I will save the world. I will bless the world in its cursed state. I will undo all of this exile. I will undo all of this death. I will undo all of this curse. I will undo the fact that people are far from me, and I will undo the fact that you can't grow corn. And everything in between is going to come and rescue on a cosmic, thorough, holistic level, and it's going to be through your offspring, who is ultimately Jesus Christ, if you go down the line far enough, uh, but first, it's Isaac, it's his only son, and again, born to a woman who was, who was infertile, she was barren, she was 100 years old, God allowed that to happen, to remind us that he saves, we don't, and to be, that, to be in that line of salvation, the ultimate line of, ultimate line of Christ. But again, from Abraham's perspective, without an heir, 
that line of salvation will be broken. And so uh, God's command here is a threat to his own promise. It's a threat to his own promise. God's saying, I'm going to give you a son, and through him I'll bless the world. But then he's actually threatening that by telling Abraham uh, to, to kill him. And that's just one big thing here. Abraham's been waiting, remember, for decades at this point. Decades. So on one level, just parents who want a child, who've been yearning for this for most of their lives, and they've been waiting for that. On another level, waiting for this promised one who will undo their problems and who will, who will undo their cursed hearts and who, who will bring them back to God and bring blessing and blessing and blessing, blessing upon blessing. And so they've been waiting kind of on both levels for, for decades, and in some cases not waiting well. And we'll go back into that, but if you know Abraham's story, He's not a good waiter like us. We're not patient people. He's been waiting well. Then God comes through on his promise and, and allows Isaac to be born. But then here in this story, bam, undo it all. You know, it's like, it's like waiting for, for, for decades and decades. Then God says, here it finally is. And the waiting's, to, the waiting's over. And then God says, undo it. Undo it. And let's not forget the obvious either. Uh, he's being asked to kill his son. So this is not like Abraham was waiting for tickets to Disney World his whole life, then God gave them, and once he got them, God said, now give them to your friend or something. Like, that's not it. That would be tough, but that's not even comparable to this. This is child sacrifice, right? It's child sacrifice. So tons of emotions here, and if, I like how Peter invited us to feel that. I want to encourage you guys to do that too, if, especially if you're parents of young boys, uh, or actually older. Actually, Isaac was about 20 when this happened, so it doesn't matter what age. Uh, or, or daughters, or even if you're not, you can feel this. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, but to feel the emotions here, and it's kind of silent. We don't see a lot of, it doesn't comment on what Abraham felt. It just talks about his obedience and his faith. But as you can imagine, confusion, uh, maybe anger as to why God would threaten his own promise, absolute despair over the impending death of his own son and that he's to take his son's life. You know, a couple weeks ago, we saw how um, Hagar had uh, Ishmael, her son. Hagar was um, uh, the, the other one, or kind of a second wife of sorts to Abraham or the, the maidservant that he had sex with to kind of provide God an offspring to work through and how that was all wrong. We talked about that, but she's cast out. And there was a moment how she had Ishmael under a, a thicket and she couldn't watch the death of Ishmael, remember that? So she went like a half mile away and turned her back and, I can't watch the death of my son. And then God kind of swooped in again and saved. Very similar to this actually today. We'll talk about that. But this is actually a step further because Abraham is to be the one to actually take the knife and to use the words of Genesis 22, slaughter, slaughter his son before the Lord. So what I want to do before we go on uh, here is is make some initial affirmations about this that may or may not be filling your mind. Um, some of you may have just, just hearing this story for the first time in your life. Uh, we know how this ends. We know that God does not let Abraham go through with it, which adds to the mystery and weirdness of this, you know? Like, why, if you're going to stop his hand anyway, what's, what's the point? And we talked about testing, but there are other things here, too, we'll mention today that are more important. But some initial affirmations, just to kind of get out of the way, uh, to make sure this is clear. First is, God will never ask you to kill your child, just to be clear. God will never do that. This is a unique situation in a unique period of history that's meant to point us to another unique event later in the story. 
and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified, which we'll get to. So it's not, if you don't know the Bible that well yet, this is not a pattern. You know, we don't see this come up in every book where God says, all right, to the next character, now you're going to go do the same thing, and sometimes he lets them kill. It never happens. This is a one-time thing, a unique situation, in a unique period of history, the Old Testament, that's meant to point us to another unique event later in the story, and that is um, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Second is, uh, God will, uh, at times, give you more than you can handle. God will do this uh, in your life, as he is for Abraham. Uh, You you may be aware of that uh, kind of pithy religious bumper sticker t-shirt saying or whatever it is that says God will never give you more than you can handle. You guys ever heard that before? It's it's not biblical. It sounds good, like maybe that's in the Proverbs somewhere, but it's not. Uh, God will give you more than you can handle so that you will trust in him. I mean, if you think about that, that saying, God will never give you more than you can handle, what kind of spirituality will that produce? It'll produce a you-can-do-it type mentality, right? Because wh- what, is, what does that mean? It means that y- your sin is not, that, not too big for you either, right? If God will never give you more than you can handle, you could look at all the, the stuff of your life, just the, the filth in your life, and say, I can take care of this myself, which is, which is the antithesis of what the Bible is actually, actually saying. In fact, if Abraham, think about Abraham hearing that. You know, Abraham's going up to this mount with his son, and someone comes up and says, don't worry, Abraham. God will never give you more than you can handle. You know, Abraham's going to punch the guy in the mouth, you know, at that moment. Like, what? That's not what he needs to hear. You know, it's like, this is more than he can handle. I could not handle this. I'm guessing most of you, if you're honest, you couldn't either. But I'll just say that. We couldn't handle it. There's tons of grace here. The grace for Abraham to respond at all, to get up early in the morning, of all days to sleep in, right? That would probably be it. But to get up early in the morning and to, and to go to this place, um, grace, 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 grace. Uh, and so the Christian life is, is one of trust amidst, at times, despair-ridden events in our lives. And that's just a definition of what it means to be a Christian. Some of you are asking that question, should I become a Christian? You're considering that. A reminder for those of you who are, uh, the Christian life is trust amidst despair. It, we, we wait for a better future. We kind of have it now, but we'll especially have it later when Christ returns. Uh, in that sense, this is emblematic of our struggles in a way, um, uh, in a way as well. So, Third is, uh, God is always most important. And I'll just ask this question to those of you who are parents, but it can be applied to all of you who are not on some other level. But do you love your kids more than God? Could you do this? And just kind of search the heart for just a second. Do you, do you love your kids more than God? Do you love, and just for all of you, do you love anything more than God? Do you love yourselves more than God? And, and here, here's the answer to, to uh to that broader question, biblically, I'll kind of expand out here. The broader answer is, myself included, we, we all love something more than him. That's the epitome of sin. It's not murder or lying or adultery. Those are symptomatic and certainly harmful and sinful, for sure, as the Bible describes. But the, the epitome of sin is saying I'm something when we're actually nothing. We're, 
the creator when we're actually creatures. We self-deify, as I was saying before. And we love ourselves too much. And so what, what you're kind of seeing here with Abraham, it, though it's the, the question's not posed explicitly, is this picture of a man, a sinner like us, who he's got a lot of issues, this guy, but in this moment, he's loving God and, and trusting him and loving him more than, than his kids. And so it's, I think it's a question that should challenge us for Christians. There's a way, I think, to kind of centralize our life around this question. But for all of us, non-Christians and Christians, you will never be good at this. You're saved from this. Jesus dies on a cross for this right here, the fact that we don't do this. So, so be relieved. Uh, re- relieve be, find the relief that there is in the gospel, uh, knowing that this is something that you don't do and I don't do. So confess that to God. And ask for his help imperfectly to, to Fourth and final here is, uh, God is not evil, yet he can do whatever he wants to work it out for the good. So Abraham here, hearing this call from God, didn't start to rationalize this philosophically. Or defend him. Saying, God surely couldn't have meant that, could he have? Many Christians try to defend God from being at all over suffering in the world. And here, God is clearly creating suffering so that he might bring about good from it later. And if you're a Christian, you believe that because you believe that God orchestrated the cross and you believe Jesus orchestrated his own death, that he willingly went to the cross. He, he created that, that context for suffering and evil so that a greater good would come out of it. All Christians believe that. They have to. They're not saved. This is, this is how we're saved, by believing that Jesus wanted to die for us and he provided himself as a sacrifice. It wasn't an accident. And so Abraham here is kind of living within that. He's not writing an open letter on Facebook, you know, to Christians who think wrongly about these things or something like that. He's just doing, he's just living as though God is good. He must have a plan for this suffering and he's trusting him. He's trusting him. He believes that God brings about suffering that he might overcome it or bring about a greater good. And we actually see that here. This is the bigger, biggest thing I want you to see, moving on from these affirmations, actually, here is, is we ask this question, what kind of faith is being celebrated and rewarded here? Uh, Hebrews 11 in the New Testament tells us. And that is, he trusted specifically in the resurrection. So, uh, let's read this. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So you see what it's saying? It's saying Abraham's faith was a particular kind of faith. It was faith that God can raise the dead. Because God had already promised to make Isaac, the one who's about to slay, his heir. And so amidst all the despair of the moment, Abraham has this robust hope in God to overcome specifically death. And you could argue relatedly sin because those things are kind of bound up. But specifically, as Hebrews 11 is saying, death. And actually in Genesis here in the bottom of verse 5, it's interesting, maybe you saw this kind of dramatic twist when it was being read, but Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then we'll come back to you. Is he lying? He's either lying or he's trusting that God will raise his son from the dead after he slays him. Those are the two options. 
And it's the latter. Because figuratively speaking, Hebrews 11, he does. And God knows he's going to slam. That's why he stops his hand. And figuratively speaking, he dies. And figuratively speaking, he is raised. And this is where faith becomes an example for us. It's not, not a, and sometimes you hear this passage talked about it in these terms. It's not always wrong to be clear, but it's not a general call to trust God in difficult circumstances. The point of Genesis 2 is not to say, trust God when he asks you to do stuff like this. You know, it's like, how can he apply that? You know, it never happens, you know? It might be difficult things, but on this level, that's not the point. It's not a generality. According to Hebrews 11, it's a specific type of faith. And that is, it's a call to believe that God raises the dead. It's a call to believe that God can actually raise the dead. And as Christians, that begins with Christ. We believe that Jesus was raised from the dead after he died for our sins. Then it goes to us. We believe he's going to raise us from the dead in that same fashion. That's what faith is, you guys. It's, it's not vague belief in God. If, if there's vague belief in God, that's not enough. And that's not what's going on here. It's not vague trust. Not a vague sense of doing what God asks you to do. It's specific belief through the lens of Hebrews 11. This is how the Bible's interpreting itself here. We have to follow suit. It's specific belief that God will raise the dead. He can do it. He has done it. And he will do it for us as well. And it's this kind of resurrection too. So again, we say this a lot here uh, to kind of reprogram times because there's just bad theologies of resurrection out there sometimes, whether it's from our own heart because none of us have perfect theology or book or sermon or whatever, speculation. Resurrection is physical. And when we go to a funeral for a Christian, if it's open casket, we look at that dead body and say, that actual body will be raised from the dead. You must. If you don't, how impotent is your, is your theology of resurrection? Change it. There's a better hope out there, a better type of hope. We go to a gravestone of a believer who's died. We believe that out of this very ground, God will remake their bodies. Our bodies that decay and turn to bones, then bones to dust. How did God make Adam in the beginning? Non-rhetorical. From the dust. We have a God that can do it. Do we believe it? Or is our hope just that our spirits will exist in the clouds in heaven someday? Not biblical, not what God ever says, not what Jesus ever says. The hope is that this earth in a glorified state will be our home. And Abraham's living, Abraham actually believes his boy's body will come back to life after he slaughters him. Is your view of resurrection on par? It's mine. That's, that's how the, the scriptures confront us here. It's a, it's a major hope. We will recognize each other. We will be like this in the new earth, but just glorified bodies like Christ had when he walked out of the tomb. He was recognized. Sometimes not because he was a little bit different, but then he was. When he hung out with his disciples, they knew he was the Lord. They saw his scars. So the, the type of resurrection hope we have, uh, kind of a la this passage, and through the lens of Hebrews 11, is so robust, so robust. God will raise us from the dead. And this is the type of faith we have to have if we want to be saved or blessed or the same type of like promise of blessing that gets pronounced upon Abraham. This is what God rewards, is this type of expectant faith. 
We believe Jesus rose from the dead. We believe he took our sins away. And we believe we will too, will rise again into new life, physically speaking. If we believe that, we're saved. And so this is what Genesis 22 confronts in, in a good way. I mean, well, maybe a challenging way. But invites us to, is to have this kind of faith in the resurrection. And so I, I ask you guys, is that where you are with God? Is that where you are with your hope? And if not, it's all right. Believe for the first time today that, that Jesus takes your sins away and that he's going to raise your body from the dead. You'll have eternal life, physically on a new earth someday where God will be present and all exile ended. Praise be to God. All right, let's move on. That's the human side, the divine side. The Isaac and the ram, or the lamb, as uh, pictures of Jesus. So as we do uh, the hard work here of um, narrowing down, the, we have done this in Genesis, uh, Narrowing down this broader idea of promise, God promising blessing generally in Genesis, to the more specific question of how is God going to do that? And we've been doing that in Genesis. Again, if you're new here for the first time, when you read about promise in Genesis, think salvation. Think, how is God going to undo this curse? How is God going to bring the holy and the sinner together and reconcile? There's this lingering kind of hanging question. Just saying God promises is too vague. The Bible gets more specific. It gets more clear later. So we should want that as well. God loves clarity. So the promise finds clarity in Jesus Christ. And so as we hone in and ask, how is God going to bless the world? Passages like this, though, give us more hints. So in the context of God promising blessing, these weird stories pop up that, again, are emblematic of Jesus. So we can, we can answer the how. We can say, well, how is God going to save how is he going to bless? How is he going to undo curse? The answer is Jesus, but read back into this story, uh, we, we see him here as well. So, so this passage then has long been read. I kind of mentioned this before, but uh, long read historically as one of the more obvious uh, typological references or kind of prophetic references to Jesus Christ in the book of Genesis. So Clement from the second century, this is kind of book-ended. I could have had a modern... Uh, commentator here too, but ran out of space. So uh, Clement says, in Genesis 22, Isaac is a type this time of the Lord Jesus. Alistair McGraw, uh, summarizing Zwingli, who was one of the reformers in the 16th century, kind of in the wake of Luther and Calvin and those guys, said, uh, he argues, the real meaning of Genesis 22 can only be understood when it is seen as a prophetic anticipation of the story of Christ, in which Abraham represents God, and Isaac is a figure or more technically, a type of Christ. And so some of the more specific connections then, and I'm going to list these out. Uh, you guys may, may have saw some of these, uh, these connections between Isaac and Jesus. And the song kind of hinted at some. I think uh, Peter was uh, definitely stealing my thunder when he summarized some of these, to be clear. No, it's, it's totally fine. Uh, all right, is uh, basically can be summarized this way. Uh, so the main ones anyway. Isaac uh, and Jesus are both one and only sons, uh, biblically, uh, verbatim quote, different parts of the Bible, just of different people. So as Zwingli said, Abraham has al already been a picture of God uh, with his activities and with some of his prayers and intercessions and different things like that. And so um, it's not the first time we're seeing this, but 
Isaac is the one and only son of Abraham. Jesus is the one and only son of God. Abraham loves Isaac. Uh, it says God actually points that out in this passage uh, and intends uh, kind of via God his sacrificial death. It's the same with Jesus. God loves his one and only son uh, and mournfully, sadly, uh, intends his sacrificial death, though, at the same time. This is important. They're both willing sacrifices. Isaac's over 20 years old at this time. He's not a child. He could have easily, easily kind of withstood his very old, weak father's attempts at bounding him if he wanted to. He's a willing sacrifice. He's probably very confused, but he laid down on the wood himself, confused and, but obedient to his father. It's the same with Jesus. Remember Jesus cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane? It's possible to take this cup from me, Father. Take it. But God's answer was, it's not possible to save any other way. And so then Jesus was willing. He partners with God the Father as God the Son to both, like, like Abraham and Isaac, remember it said, they both went together, shoulder to shoulder, a 100-year-old and a 20-year-old, partnering to, to this, be obedient to this um, request of God. It's the same with God and Jesus. They both go together to Calvary. God sovereignly intends this. His son is obedient to the call. And he's also orchestrating his own death as well. They're both willing sacrifices. With Isaac, uh, wood is laid on his back, and then he is laid himself on the wood or the altar. Uh, it's the same with uh, Christ. He carries a wooden cross on his back, and then he is laid on that wood uh, when he's nailed to it as well. Uh, Moriah and Jerusalem are the same location. Uh, Moriah is kind of the early sort of broader geographic, geographical area that Jerusalem's later founded in, so it's the same place. Uh, Jesus is crucified right outside the city, but uh, still, same area. And they're both raised in the third day. Maybe you guys noticed that too. The third day reference in Genesis 22 is the day that this all occurs and where his figurative resurrection, per Hebrews 11, takes place. Uh, it's the same with Jesus as well, who raised, actually raised, on the third day. So what this is all saying is Jesus is the ultimate Isaac. He's the true and better one. He's the willing sacrifice of God who carries the wooden cross on his back to the ultimate Moriah and dies for our sins. This is the gospel on the left here, the gospel ahead of time. And as we move on to the ram, so the story does not end there. It's, it's layered and nuanced and beautiful and complicated and messy and mysterious. Uh, it, it could have ended there. We'd have a lot. Right? If we ended this right here, we would have a lot to say about the gospel, about God's plan, how his promise would find fulfillment, all of that. More, just more about the gospel, but it goes on. We had this ram or this lamb as well. Genesis 22. Uh, what I think this tells us narratively, just kind of on face level or face value, is that there's another person or another kind of thing past Isaac that we should be looking to. So there's movement in the story. This whole thing with Abraham and Isaac occur, but then there's movement. God says, turn your eyes to the thicket, and there's a ram. And so, so right in the story, we have kind of Isaac to ram, uh, this motif, uh, this movement. And so it ends with the ram. And this tells us, just that movement right there in the story tells us there's another later in the story who will actually die, who will be like the ram, who Isaac will point to. Because in this story, Isaac's pointing to the ram. Isaac basically died, but the ram actually dies. It's the same way with Christ. Isaac figuratively dies, he figuratively is raised, but Jesus, like the ram, actually dies and is actually raised. So it's a hint right in the story. If all you knew was Genesis, if you've never read the end of the book, you would be 
you would be thankful there's a ram here. And you'd be wondering, is there going to be maybe another ram later on? Is the story going to keep kind of steamrolling through Old Testament times to get us to that one who would, not as an animal, because the blood of the bulls and goats and lambs can never take away sins, but a person who would die for people, namely Jesus Christ. And so the ram himself then is also a picture of of Christ in these ways. Uh, in, In the passage, it's very clear that God provides the lamb. Jesus is also provided by God as a gift for sinners. They both die in a mount, and this big one here is it's substitutionary. So the lamb is a substitute for Isaac, and Jesus is a substitute, uh, is a substitute for all. Uh, that, that's a key piece we don't get with Isaac. And so this is why it's important this is here. As we learn, as we learn more about what salvation is and how God is going to bless cursed people, it is through a sacrifice. It is through a death. It is through suffering. It's through resurrection. Uh, it's not through a figurative one. It's through an actual one. And the ram kind of typifies this, but Jesus completes it uh, by actually substituting his body as a human being, but a perfect one for sinful ones like you and me. So Jesus is this lamb of God, as John the Baptist says, this ultimate Genesis 22 ram who takes away uh, the, the sin of the world. And that, that is the gospel. There's so many ways to say it and summarize it, but for those of you who know it, and especially if you don't know it today, this is the gospel. God provided a substitute for you that you might not die in your sin. And the question Jesus asks us, uh, like he asks people in his ministry, is do you believe this? It's a question of faith, like it was for Abraham. He believed God could bring back the dead. It's belief. As I like to point out a lot, there's no law here in Genesis 22. Nor is there at the cross. God is not, in, in the context of this whole Isaac and Ram thing happening, kind of inserting well, this is all really good, but, but also uh, here, do, be sure to do this and to abstain from this and to be really good at saying this and, and, and then they die and then they actually raise. It's not, it's not blended with all of that. In fact, the Old Testament law is centuries away from coming into history for Israel. Chronologically, it's a, it's a massive argument and Paul uses the chronological argument about the law in Galatians to say that all of this faith stuff predates law and that, that tells you that it's superior it's by faith we're saved, by trust in God, not by keeping of the law, not by being good people, not by avoiding being bad people. But in Genesis 22, it's a simple ask, it's a simple request of belief, and it's a simple act of Abraham's trust as a sinner in a God who knows better, in a God who's provisional, in a God who loves to give good gifts uh, to, those, to those he loves. And and that question is, do you believe this? And I, I want to just leave that out there for you, and we'll, we'll say it again. If you're not a Christian yet, God loves you deeply, and he's provided his son as a substitute for you, a sinner. He's kind of become sin for you. He's taken your sin on his shoulder that you might be rescued, and like Isaac, not killed. There's actually more, been hinting at this, um, this is uh, not just a salvific transaction here. Um, 
as we've been talking about, though that's, that's certainly true. It's an exchange, Christ for sinners, like the ram for Isaac in Genesis 22. But it's more than that. It's a demonstration of love. And you get a uh, hint of that here in Genesis 22, 12. Uh, God says, or the angel of the Lord says, Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Uh, the, the, so that basically what the angel of the Lord is saying, I can see your heart for God with the action here. It's, it's the same with God towards us. This is why this is here, because later God wanted to write this. Romans 8.32 He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? So he's saying to the church, God, God gave, did not withhold Jesus from you. Like Abraham did not withhold Isaac. God did not hold him back as a gift, but, but he gave him up. You know, it's basically like saying, God is saying here, now you know how much I love you, seeing that I have not withheld my son, my only son, uh, from you. And Genesis 22 is then, that's what this is saying prophetically. It's, it's saying, looking ahead, another story like this is coming when my son will carry wood on his back and be sacrificed on a mount as a substitute for sinners, and then you will know that I love you. And you will call upon me, and I will save you. That's the New Testament. These are my words, but that, that could be just right in the prophets, right? Or right in, right in Genesis. This is basically what it's saying is, is this is happening, not as an end unto itself, that another one like it would come to, to better it, to surpass it, to complete it, to be the ultimate finish line of it. And when you believe in that, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Isaac and Lamb. You will be saved. You will be blessed. You will, you will have eternal life. You will come back from the dead, like figuratively speaking, Isaac did. And before us, Christ did as the harbinger of resurrection and the first fruits of it. And so I really want you guys to see that here. It's, it's easy to talk, not that it's wrong, just to talk about the gospel on transactionary levels, that's okay. Just to talk about the great exchange, as some have coined it, you know, God for sinners and the substitutionary principle of what happened on the cross. But if we don't see the love, we, we miss a huge component to what God wants us to see. He wants us to see his heart. And, and all the emotions wrapped up in Genesis 22 is the same emotions wrapped up in the gospel, uh, in, in what happened on the cross. And I mean, can you imagine being the disciples on that day where you, you thought this was the guy and he's being crucified? Maybe you're thinking, I know my Bible. I know Genesis 22. I know God stayed the hand of Abraham. Maybe that'll happen with Jesus. And it doesn't. You imagine the despair, the frustration, the anger, feeling duped, running away from Jesus, giving up like all the disciples, Jesus' close friends did. They did not understand. Just like Abraham in that moment. But what this is about, this is a story of the gospel that's about love. Uh, it's about love sparing a father the loss of his son. It, true love sacrificing everything. The ultimate father did not spare his son. And when he gave him up, love conquered all. It, it, to use God's words, it, 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 uh, it, it conquered the gates of our enemies, uh, sin and death. It, it, it conquered them both. You know, and then can you imagine, like in Abraham's case, on the other side of what, when God said, stop it, 
don't kill your son. Imagine the relief, you know, or, or the sorrow knowing that something still had to die, the ram. Or God's love moving us to tears. You know, all, all those emotions in Genesis 22 are heightened at the cross. It's the same thing. When we see that God has made a way out, it's not asking us to do anything because we can't. It's, he's doing it all. He's providing all. He's providing the ultimate ram. He's dying for, and it is him who's doing it. There's the somberness, the sorrow, the Good Friday feel, the darkness, but the Easter joy. See, all of those emotions are here in Genesis 22, just on very kind of, kind of infancy stage. It's just kind of, just kind of there, sort of there. You know, for those of us who feel that as a parent, maybe a little bit more there. At the cross, it's the same. The gospel brings relief, sorrow, tears, joy, peace. This is what God is like. He, he, he says to us, I will die instead so that you won't have to. It, it, you have to know that that's for you individually. You have to know this. This is not just an academic exercise. He, he has done this for you too. You are Abraham. I am Abraham. You are Isaac. And, and I'm, I, he's, he has said, I will die instead. The God of the universe will die my son will die for you. And then you will know that I love you. Not just that you'll be saved, but then you will know that, that I love you. So, so then, uh, in conclusion then, the, the point of this story is not give up everything for God. The point is, God gave everything up for you. He provided the lamb so that you might be saved. Uh, there, there needs to be sacrifice for sin. Um, I got this last minute this morning, so I couldn't remember where it was in Hebrews. But <laughs> anyway, it's in there somewhere, uh, trust me. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If that's strange, welcome to the club. But it's also truth. And so bend the knee, believe this. God says, sin has to be punished. There has to be a ram. There has to be an Isaac. And God says, though, he doesn't put that on us, saying, Cut yourselves enough. Punish yourselves enough. Live in ascetic spirituality enough in your life. Abstain from this and this and this and this enough. He doesn't say it. He says, I will die for you. Isn't that amazing? This is what your God is like. This is what my God is like. This is what the only true God is like. This is what he's promised. This is what he's said. This is what he's imaged in Genesis 22, so that we can know even ahead of time what Jesus is going to be like and how he's going to save, how the promises will be fulfilled. We don't have to guess. All the Bible is about Jesus and him crucified, so that if we wander off the path and think we're something when we're nothing, we go back to this and say, Abraham, as a sinner, was saved. As one who wasn't trusting, who put everything into his own hands for a while, and an idol worshiper, a liar, a, who sold his wife into prostitution earlier on. He's the worst guy. That's the point. He's the worst of guys, like, like you and me. We're the worst of people. And, God, and if, you, if you know that about yourself, you, you're in a good spot, biblically, because God loves those types. And, and he will save you if you just believe in the gospel that Genesis 22 images. So believe, believe, believe. Believe that he can raise the dead. Believe he can take your sin away and put all your eggs in the basket of, of the gospel. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much for um, today, for your word, for the gospel according to Genesis 22. Uh, how beautifully, wonderfully, uh, centuries and centuries before Christ walked the earth, this was written uh, as a, a prophetic picture of what you would actually do, Jesus, in your life, but especially the goal of your life, your ultimate mission, was to die. God the Father's intent, Jesus uh, going with the Father, walking that road to Calvary as a willing sacrifice, carrying that wood, being nailed to a tree uh, for us. Um, God, that's going to humble and offend all of us. Maybe some in this room uh, just can't handle it. I uh, pray for their souls, though, that they would be able to, by your spirit, they might be saved by it. Uh, basically, the gospel says you can't do it. It's a hard thing to hear, but it's the right thing. And so I pray you'd humble our hearts to receive, soften our hearts to receive what the truth of the gospel really is. And give us courage to jettison what it's not. It's not about the law. There's no law in Genesis 22, just a sacrifice. There's no law at the cross, just Jesus bleeding out on a tree. It's about God providing salvation, providing a way out, making a way of rescue, and showing his love, his deep love. I love you so much that I'll die for you. Um, that's the message of the gospel. So help us to rejoice in that for the first time today for some of us to believe and become a Christian today. And for those of us who already are, to, to rejoice and be relieved that God loves me that much as a sinner. Uh, in Christ's name, amen.